I'm delighted to say, Carl, we have a very interesting guest this morning. Indeed we have. And some of the people of Scarf have already heard him, but lots of our listeners may not have. Stuart Dixon, may I welcome you to Scarf Bay Community Radio. And thank you very much and a very good morning to everybody on this rather soft morning yeah, of rain. Soft, <laughs> soft is soft, right. We say. You're, you're, I listened to your, your um, speech yesterday and it's very interesting, but a lot of people might have heard it. Would you like to give us a little insight into your background, Stuart? Okay, sure. Um, I'm Stuart Dixon. I'm... Um, a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, and I was elected to it way back in, in 2011. But my, my interest in, in time and politics goes even way further back than that. Yes. I was first elected as a member of Carrick-Fergus Borough Council in 1977. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm that old. And I've held elected office ever since then. Um, as a local council member, um, as mayor of Carrickfergus for for one great year, and uh, then subsequent to that, and fast forward to that, um, elected to the Northern Ireland Assembly in, in 2011, and this is now my third term. I returned uh, just in May of this year. I'm a member of the Alliance Party, and and some of your listeners may have sort of realised that the Alliance Party is come to the notice of people, yes, sure. uh, much wider than just our local community in Northern Ireland. Um, and we describe it as the Alliance Surge. Um, we, we, we went from seven members of the Assembly in the last mandate to 17 <laughs> in this yeah. election this year, 2022. Um, but that's been a long story for us. The party is, is I think, 55 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've come through the struggles of the Troubles. We've been the centre party. We've been described as the middle of the road party. Um, and uh, we have been written off on many, many occasions by, by not only our opposition, which is fair enough, they can do that, and, uh, but by commentators and, and, and by the news and the press and the media. But there's a there's a certain tenacity among people um, in 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 the north and in Ulster in general, and you know when we get behind a project we stick with it, and um, we have very deep liberal roots that go way back into the Ulster Liberal Party that that precedes partition, mm-hmm. um, and I, I guess in the in the late sixties when the troubles were starting and into the seventies um, there was a lot of political change. There were unionists and nationalists, and that was it. Um, and there was a very small uh, Liberal Party in, in Northern Ireland. At, at that stage, actually, only two members of the old Northern Ireland Party, of the Northern Ireland Government, or the Northern Ireland Parliament, were, were, were Liberals. And one of them was only in the Parliament because she um, actually held a seat for Queen's University mm-hmm. back in the day when the universities had seats in Parliament. Um, and um, so, in the, by the late 60s, um, people were coming together first in an organisation called the New Ulster Movement, uh, and then uh, that coalesced into the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, led initially by um, a, a member of parliament who crossed the floor in the old Northern Ireland Parliament, Phelan O'Neill, um, and then for a very short period of time, uh, and then uh, Oliver Napier was the first really broadly known leader of the Alliance Party. Um, Oliver very nearly unseated the MP for for East Belfast at that 
uh, in, a, in a fairly famous election. I think there was only 16 votes in it. Um, and if, if that had taken place, the, the perhaps some of the changes would have happened much quicker. <laughs> Over the 50 years, um, we were certainly electing local councillors. And then, of course, post-Good Friday Agreement, we had the Northern Ireland Assembly created. And we ha always had a, a small foothold in that assembly yeah. of five, six, and, and in the last assembly, seven members of that. What, what do you attribute? Sorry, sorry. What do you attribute the growth of the Alliance Party to, in particular? Well, in particular, uh, it's 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 the culmination of that history, and and our current leader Naomi Long, mm. um, who, um, when she joined the party, uh, got elected as a local councillor in Belfast to the city council. She had an incredible year as Lord Mayor of Belfast, uh, one of the very few female mayors in Belfast, the first first alliance party uh, Lord Mayor in Belfast. And she certainly carved out a, 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 niche. a niche and a very different attitude uh, to things there. And then a few years later into her, her time in the party, uh, David Ford um, um, was the party leader at the time. Naomi had been Lord Mayor of Belfast. We had a Westminster election and she spectacularly unseated the MP for East Belfast again. And a lot of people have a very strange perception of East Belfast. It's the shipyard. It's mm -hmm. it's hardline loyalist. It's it's very orange and all of that. And yet it, there's, a, there's a liberal core in that constituency. Oliver Napier, Naomi Long. Oliver didn't unseat the MP. Naomi did, spectacularly beating Peter Robinson, the leader of yes. the DUP, and was MP uh, for nearly five years for East Belfast. She was then defeated in the next election. Uh, however, uh, she then uh, became leader of the Alliance Party uh, in the Assembly, made a, made a very strong mark for herself there. And in the recent past, of course, just at the very end, when the United Kingdom um, disastrously was leaving the EU, we did actually have one more European election. And I think the uh, UK uh, MEPs were there for about 10 months before the UK finally withdrew. And she won. She was elected as an MEP, and that's for the whole constituency of Northern Ireland. Uh, she was elected second, um, a spectacular vote for the party, yeah. and that was really the rise of things for us. Yeah. Uh, local government elections then four years ago, um, a big increase in our councillors right across Northern Ireland, and in councils where we'd never been elected before. And then we come right forward now to the elections this year in May, to mm -hmm. the Assembly. Um, and absolutely trebling our vote, electing 17 members in my constituency of East Antrim, uh, where I've always been elected, we elected two uh, representatives. Uh, so there are two of us, Danny Donnelly and myself, now representing East Antrim in the Assembly. So um, a lot of it down to the work of Naomi Long, but a lot of it down to uh, just the hard work and tenacity of a lot of people and lots and lots of volunteers. Stuart, can I ask what matters to your constituents in the, you know, in the elections of May 2022? Mm. What is it from uh, in East Antrim? What are people talking about? What, what were you hearing on the doorsteps? Well, just to sort of give you a little insight into the politics of Northern Ireland, of course, lots of people, uh, the opposition parties were telling us, and particularly the DUP were telling us, it was all about this terrible protocol uh, because Northern Ireland has been left neither in nor out of the EU and all of that. The reality, 
That was not raised with us on the doorsteps. The issues that were raised with us on the doorsteps were health care, long appointments to see your G, long time to see a GP, uh, length of hospital waits for, for, for operations and treatments and tests. Um, and of course, issues around the emerging uh, inflation of the moment, uh, <coughs> the cost of energy, electricity and gas bills, all of those things. The, the everyday issues that matter to people, not the high politics that other political parties seem to think that, 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 uh, uh, that, that make people vote for them. It could be it, on any doorstep in Ireland or England at the moment, couldn't it? It, it could, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got to be able to have the solutions and you've got to be able to inspire confidence in people that if you're if 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 you're if you're going to tackle those issues, that you actually have some solution and for th them. The next question I would have then is the what has the hiatus been like, where the, the legislative assembly is suspended? Mm. What effect is that having on how Northern Ireland is working? Well, it's having a, it's having a very very difficult effect yeah. on how things are working. We're in a situ slightly different situation from the previous mandate, because remember, in the previous mandate of five years, three of those years were suspended yeah. because of the behaviour of Sinn Féin, yeah. who, who wouldn't participate o over issues which, of course, are important, Irish language and, and, and all of that. But it was, it was always ever going to be resolved. They just didn't seem to have the patience to wait for it. Um, uh, this time it's the DUP that are holding uh, up the, the, the creation of an executive and therefore uh, an executive which the Assembly will hold ministers to account for. What's slightly different this time is that, that because of the lessons of the last uh, breakdown, um, at least our, the ministers from the previous mandate continue to remain in office uh, and they, there's a limited amount of work they can do. But we cannot, as an Assembly member, I can't hold them to account. Okay. Uh, and but did you recently, did you convene this week to... To well, elect a speaker. Well, we were we were due to convene this week. Um, the SDLP, um, because because um, the protocol legislation, which the UK Tory Party seemed to think is going to fix it for the DUP, uh, I, I'll reserve judgment on that, and, yeah. and I oppose the legislation anyway. But the the. Um, there was a feeling, I guess, that, that, that because that legislation at least had passed the House of Commons, it's now gone to the House of Lords and it'll, be, it'll disappear down a black hole there forever. Um, there was a feeling that as it had passed the House of Commons, that that might be a, a high watermark to allow the DUP to at least allow us to elect a, a speaker, which would allow us to hold ministers to account. Um, Regrettably, uh, David Trimble's death yeah. occurred, and that that required a postponement of that meeting of the assembly. Uh, the assembly will now reconvene on okay. Wednesday of next week, and of course, the beginning of that session will be tributes to David Trimble, and then following that, then there will be uh, I, I suspect uh, and predict uh, an abortive attempt to to elect a, a speaker yet again. I just don't think that the DUP are in the space to deliver that at this point in okay, time. Okay, so so no, uh, nothing up and running in the next few months. Then, do you think? No. Well, uh, we've been making strong proposals to um, the UK government, to the Irish government, and to the US, who take a strong interest in what happens in Northern Ireland. Um, the Good Friday Agreement requires that um, 
uh, unionist and nationalists must be in the government. The Good Friday Agreement requires that uh, they hold effectively hold a veto over each other mm-hmm. in terms of what's called cross-community support. In other words, both of them have to support what happens. And just to give you a further little insight, um, as an alliance member of the Assembly, my vote doesn't count in that, uh, which is bizarre. Um, that? Sorry, I don't... Okay, because in order to create what's called cross-community support, you have to have a majority of unionists and a majority of nationalists in favour. Others, so the Alliance Party and People Before Profit and a couple of independents uh, in the Assembly, our votes don't count as cross-community votes. Our votes don't count as unionists or nationalists. Famously, of course, the Alliance Party in the past actually designated as unionists for 25 minutes to actually get force of votes through, <laughs> and then we undesignated. But we don't want ever to do that again. Uh, and we could just as easily have designated as nationalists, I guess. Um, but we did it to, to make the point. Um, but but, but I, I find it quite offensive that I have to, in theory, according to the law, when, when, when we sign in, uh, after an election, I have to sign in as other. I don't. I sign in, I scored out, and I sign in, as do all of my now 17 Alliance colleagues, we sign in as United Community. Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah. You did say yesterday in your speech that you did kind of hope that from a different uh, approach, the Alliance Party might be able to uh, get the Assembly up and running by the later on this year. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, I think that there, there are... There are as everybody says nowadays, there are various routes into how we might resolve this issue. One of those might be that the DUP will, and I suspect are under intense pressure in the community to get back into business. Sometimes it's simple things. Let's let flash back to the time when Sinn Féin were out holding us up in the previous mandate. It was a nurse's strike yeah, that effectively yeah, resolved that. Yeah. And I suspect this time it will be the financial crisis and the fuel cost mm-hmm. crisis that will force the DUP back. Because, and not by design, but by, by accident, we are literally sitting on £400 per household, which cannot and will not be paid until there's an assembly. And actually, uh-huh. it will be substantially more money than that uh-huh. by the time we would ever get uh, as a, it As out. a subsidy or a grant? As a subsidy it? towards yeah, yeah. electricity, but uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and so I suspect that once... And this is not a, this is this is this is a conservative figure. Yeah. Once three thousand pound electricity bills hit the doormats, mm-hmm. people are going to want their four hundred pounds and a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. And and they will be blaming the DUP for not getting it. Yeah, yeah. Just um, Stuart, I suppose lots of things are are maybe um, appear contradictory <laughs> uh, in Northern Ireland. But, you know, we have on the one hand, and, and we get media reports here, obviously, and it's probably from an EU perspective. Mm. Um, but on the one hand, we hear that, let's say, the two parts of, of the UK that are doing best is London and Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, and, you know, business in Northern Ireland, when they're interviewed on, on BBC or, or UTV, appear to, you know, be, be pro the the protocol to some degree yeah uh, at least pro being involved in the in the eu single market correct uh, but on the other hand then uh, everything is hold is, is is held up because um the the protocol has to go according to a certain section of the community it's just there appears to be a contradiction between business and politics there is and i believe business 
you know, I believe the businesses are telling us the truth, and I think that some politicians are most definitely not telling us the truth. <laughs> the reality is that I, I'm, I, I, I oppose Brexit. I, I, I oppose the protocol because I don't think that it was necessary, um, and it has created the protocol is there because of Brexit. If we hadn't had Brexit, yeah. we wouldn't have had a protocol. But the protocol has delivered some benefits for Northern Ireland, and those benefits are the ability to trade effectively cross-border here on the island of Ireland, uh, because the alternative to that is a hard border. Yes. And we're never, ever going to go back to that. Um, but it also allows us to trade right across the, 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 the whole of the EU as if we had never left. And, yes. and businesses are, by all appearances, doing that. And very successfully. And the figures are showing that. All the economic indicators, all the independent uh, reports. I mean, I, I listened, for example, a few weeks ago to the uh, economic correspondent uh, for the Ulster Bank who was, was, was making that point. There are some sections of business that aren't doing well, some that, that, that have trading difficulties uh, with the rest of the UK. But those are issues that can be resolved. These aren't issues which require Liz Truss and, and, and Morisekovic to, 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 to get into arguments about. These are, are problems that civil servants and customs and excise people can sit down and work out how they will resolve those issues. Yes, the, the big scare story a few months ago was that we weren't going to get, um, we, we weren't going to get medicines. Yes, um, because of a, a difference in regime of, of verifying medicines in the EU compared to the way which the UK now has to do it. Mm. The reality was that those that, those that organise these things sat down and they worked it out. Yes. And the medicines have never stopped flowing and they never would have stopped flowing. We told them that. But it was a great political argument to make. But, but I'm just thinking, listening to you last night, uh, you know... We, we get accounts in the media where there's kind of consistent gridlock, deadlock, mm. no movement. And yet you, this morning and certainly last night in your speech, you, you seem very optimistic. Well, I, I'm optimistic on two fronts. I, I explained to you sort of a, a, a pressure point scenario where things might just effectively push the DUP over the line into getting back because they will come under community pressure. And the other thing, and the, and the politics of this, and this, this goes back to the Good Friday Agreement, uh, because the Good Friday Agreement at the time set that requirement for unionists and nationalists and excluded the rest of us from that, um, we're now saying to uh, the UK government, we're saying to the Irish government, and we're, we're, we're engaged with the, with the US, uh, and we're saying that we have to actually deal with that issue. And there should be no reason why a government of the willing uh, couldn't be delivered in Northern Ireland, provided that you put in all the safeguards uh, and uh, to, to deliver that so that it wouldn't be dominated by one party or another. Uh, you could have weighted majority. So in a, it, rather than have unionists and nationalists, if you have a weighted majority of parties in the Assembly uh, on those sort of key issues that the Good Friday Agreement had concerns about, um, then there's no reason why we couldn't do that. So in theory... We're saying there could be a government which could consist of the Alliance Party, the SDLP, the Ulster Unions and Sinn Féin. And if the DUP don't want to play, that's fine, they can be the opposition. <laughs> Thanks a million for giving us an insight into the politics of your uh, Northern Ireland. <laughs> I'm going to change now and I'm going to bring you to um, what came across yesterday evening as your love of Carrick Fergus. Tell us about your hometown. Oh gosh, my hometown. Well, um... 
I was born and raised in, in, in Carrickfergus, a little community just to the side of Carrickfergus called Green Island. Um, and there is actually a Green Island, it's a sort of little rock that sits out in Belfast Lock. Mm-hmm. Um, and <coughs> Carrickfergus, I live about, uh, yes, about three miles from Carrickfergus. Um, it's a very historic town. Uh, we have a, a Norman castle uh, built by John de Courcy, one of the great Normans who built lots of castles all around mm-hmm. at the island of Ireland and in Scotland as well. And um, he, the, the castle was built as a great defence, of course, uh, against raiders, against uh, all the various uh, people who wanted to invade Ireland at that particular time. But Carrickfergus Castle is one of the best-preserved Norman castles on the island. It's still occupied today in the sense that it is a full, living, open museum. Uh, In fact, just in the last few years, they restored the roof, which had previously been um, a fairly mundane tar paper and and, and beams roof. And... um, Painstakingly, the 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 um, historic monuments have replaced that roof with what would have been the an original style of roof using oak beams uh, and traditional materials. So it's been restored to what it what it would have been. Um, yes. So it, that it the castle has had nothing done to it other than it is preserved and it's and in fact it was occupied. It was a, it was a military castle up until the 1930s. Mm. Um, so um, you know it, it's been there a, a very long time. The town gets its name, Carrickfergus or Carrickfergus, which means the Rock of Fergus. Uh, And the Rock of Fergus is there because it's a rocky promontory the castle sits on. The history behind that is that King Fergus, a Scottish king, apparently had some form of skin disease, probably probably leprosy or something like Mm -hmm. that. And he sailed across, what, the 23 miles from Scotland to this famous rock. And there was a, there's a well on the rock. And uh, allegedly his, his, his condition was cured as a result of that. The well is there to this day. So if you walk into the centre of the castle, it's part of the reason why, mm-hmm. not least of all because the castle is built on a rocky promontory, mm-hmm. but because in the centre of this rock, there's a fresh water. So you're out in the sea, but there's a fresh water well in the middle of it. And the well's there to this day. You can look down through the glass lid and see, and see the water. Oh, absolutely. I was yeah. just thinking that a weekend to Carrickfergus would be lovely. <laughs> and not only that, there's a, there's a wonderful Norman church in the town as well, the Church of St. Nicholas. Um, Beautiful Norman church. Um, And again, uh, very historic, very famous. Uh, It's it's in cruciform, standard church cruciform, but the cruciform shape lies slightly to the left because apparently when Christ was uh, 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 crucified on the cross, the cross leaned to the left. Uh, So it matches that. Um, The church has got lepers windows, so people who had leprosy and it was very prevalent in in medieval and middle ages times uh, there are little narrow slit windows which you could stand outside and look into the church because you wouldn't have been allowed inside. Not contaminate the Not, not contaminate the, the, the people inside the church. And in addition to that, buried in the in the, uh, the, the, the centre, lots of people buried in the centre, say famous people buried in the, the centre aisle, but probably the most famous one in terms of an American visitors coming is the son of William Penn. 
of course, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. who came to Ireland and to the UK to 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 do trading, yeah. and he died. Uh, um, and he died on board his ship, and he's buried in um, St Nicholas yeah. Church okay. there. And the Penn family have been quite generous, as I understand, over a number of years uh, to the to Not the church. To Not have. a bad connection to have, <laughs> no. Um, Stuart, I'm interested in how, like you know, you're representing your community and most welcome down here opening our festival in Scarf which is of course an all-Ireland yes. cross, cross-border initiative and you know I'm just thinking what what does that mean to you that's one question and the other one is do you see a good future in the island of Ireland in tourism and you know the, the entire island of yeah. Ireland being one of the big positives coming out of the Good Friday Agreement is the creation of Waterways Ireland which does connect us we are we are genuinely connected and and politically I don't think I could point you to a single politician, north or south, who would say that this isn't a good idea and it's something that we shouldn't be continuing developing and, and, and working on. So I, I think it is it, it, it provides a, a great connection uh, across the island for those people that are of an interest in our waterways, in boating, in fishing, and all of those activities that, that, that happen on, in, and around the water. Um, but, but in addition to that, yes, the island of Ireland in world terms is, is small. We are a tremendous tourist destination. We've just come through two years of COVID and very few visitors coming to the island, either north or south. We have tremendous opportunities, everything from the Giants Causeway up on the north coast uh, to, as we were mentioning today or yesterday, Grace Hill, which is this wonderful little perfectly preserved uh, Moravian school and village in, in, in the middle of County Antrim and Ballymena, to your holy island here, places which are, are vitally important, but of international significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grace Hill is 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 preparing to be a world heritage site. Uh, and I would love to see somewhere like Holy Island mm-hmm. here doing that. And also Carrick Fergus Castle because of its position in terms of its yeah. history mm-hmm. uh, and in terms of its preservation. We need to be able to preserve that at the highest level. And that's what that that's what world heritage status would bring for us. Can we ask you now, Stuart, about you shared it with us last night and um, I was very interested in your story of cancer survivorship mm. and you know you you certainly had you know a difficult and complex like esophageal cancer is a difficult one isn't it it is yes but you're passionate about promoting the signs of it you know will yeah. you tell us a bit about that journey that you had sure yeah um, three years ago in, in, in on the 11th of July um, well, just a, a four weeks before that, I'd been to see my GP because my wife had been nagging me that I'd been complaining um, that um, when I was eating, but not all the time, um, food tended to get stuck a bit, uh, not my throat, but sort of just what you might perceive as the top of your stomach. And that's exactly what was happening. And we should just say the esophagus is your food pipe that takes, it is, exactly. it's, takes from it, your it, mouth it, down it, to your stomach. It, yeah. it's, the, it's the tube that connects the back of yeah. your throat to the top of your stomach. Exactly that. And you've no nerves inside it. So you've very little. That's why you, when you drink a hot drink, you actually, you might burn your throat, you might burn your stomach, but what you don't burn is your esophagus in between because right. you don't feel it. Mm. Uh, you might burn it, but you don't feel it. Um, but yeah, um, so food was sticking at the top of my stomach. And um, it was uncomfortable. I had probably was starting to lose a little weight um, because I wasn't being able to eat enough. So headed to the GP. 
GP said, okay, I will give you, you know, some antacid and stuff like that, but actually I don't think that's going to solve the problem. I want you to go to hospital and have a camera test. Thought, oh, great, I don't really fancy that. Anyhow, I went, uh, 11th of July, and uh, the doctor was putting the camera down my throat and I was lying there, sort of, they give you a light sedative just to make things a little easier. And, um, but I could hear them saying, right, we take a biopsy here, one there. Well, I'll take seven of those. And I'm thinking, this is oh, not gosh. good. This is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because I'd had the light sedative, I needed about half an hour to come round a, a little. Um, and one of the nurses was sitting beside the bed. And the next moment, then the doctor appeared and she said, uh, you maybe heard what I was saying. And I said, yeah. I said, is it an ulcer? And she said, no, no, it's not. Uh, she said, I can't say exactly what it is, but I can see something fairly difficult there. It's probably a tumour and we need to deal with that. And literally at the same time as she was telling me that, the staff around her were making arrangements for me to see specialists and all of that. Uh, that was on a Wednesday. On the Friday, I was back at the hospital, my local hospital, um, to hear the outcome of what they call a multidisciplinary team meeting with the Cancer Centre in Belfast, where they discuss all cancer cases across the north on a weekly basis. And um, the consultant that I saw said, well, um, the good news is we're going to be able to do something about this. The bad news is it's probably one of the roughest things that most people can go through, but I can tell you that you're going to be a survivor. And uh, he said that the cancer centre would be in touch very quickly. And I said, okay, and you're sort of trying to take all this information in. We literally got back into the car outside the hospital in the car park. I hadn't even got my seatbelt on and the mobile phone rent. And it was one of the nurses from the cancer centre saying, can you be here Monday morning? Mm-hmm. And that was Friday was lunchtime. Moving quickly. Yeah. Moving incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. And series of tests and CT scans and uh, a full and clear diagnosis. I had what they call a classic signet ring tumour, if you can imagine that, sort of inside the tube and a little lump on the inside of it. And um, they said that they have to do an operation called an esophagectomy. And uh, you think, okay, well, fair enough. Um, And unlike most cancers, the chemotherapy came first and the surgery second. Most other people, it tends to be the other way around. Uh, But for OG cancer, that's the way it's done because they need to shrink the tumour so it allows them to see a lot more. Uh, And, of course, it actually allows you to eat. Uh, At the end of the first round of chemotherapy, I was eating perfectly normally again, Mm -hmm. and I actually said to them, are you sure I can't just do with that? (laughs) They said, no, no, no. (laughs) The chemotherapy, and it does affect everybody very differently. Um, The first round, I was a bit... I was exceptionally tired. I was in, I was in bed for the week. Um, but after that, uh, the rest of it, I tolerated very, very well. I was actually able to go to work. Were you? I was. Yeah. I, I lost my hair, um, and which all came back. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I was able to go to work. I was able to travel. I, I had a meeting in, in of the uh, Council of Europe in Strasbourg, and I, I, I went all the way there. I was actually on my last round of chemo there. It was uh, the three rounds consisted of uh, one inpatient or one one day treatment of an infusion and then 28 days of tablets. Uh, so chemotherapy tablets nowadays are very common rather than uh, drips and stuff like that. So it, it, 
you know, the advances in technology yes. are incredible. And that was a point that you made last night, and I was so excited to hear, as I worked in the area of cancer for a number of years, and I was so excited to hear about the test mm. that you were talking about. Yeah. And because, can you explain that, that I you can. don't necessarily need a camera? No. In the first, you might, you would obviously do later if, yeah. if, if, if something shows up. Yeah. Lots of people have the fear of that. And of course, it's a long slow process you have to get an appointment for 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 a camera test it has to be done by a specialist uh, team in a hospital and there are risks around the camera tasks tests as well and anyway nobody wants a camera put down their throat no so um the latest way of of is that a thing called cytosponge and if you can just simply imagine a little plastic capsule like a like an antibiotic capsule uh, that you might take or paracetamol capsules those little sort of plastic gelatiny ones and uh, they give you a glass of water you swallow that and it's got the tiny finest little piece of thread attached to it which you wouldn't even notice when you're swallowing and so you swallow the little pill the capsule dissolves and like fishing exactly (laughs) and a little sponge comes out yeah yeah and the 10 minutes later, the nurse doing it, sitting beside you, just pulls the little piece of thread and the little sponge comes up and it swipes the inside of your esophagus, mm-hmm. taking cell samples, which are popped into a little test tube, sent off to the lab and they can see what's in there. Wow. Can I ask Painless. You, can I ask you, sorry, Karen, um, I know you, you're an advocate for the charity in Northern yes. Ireland. Yes. But I just wanted to ask you this because apparently the incidence of esophageal cancer is growing. It is, yes. And do it's you, a one in eight. Do they know why? Or No, and there's a lot of international research in respect of that. There's no lifestyle um the, the, there's no lifestyle indicators for it, so there's not, not it's not obesity, it's not diet, it's not smoking, it's not alcohol. Uh all of those things have been ruled out. Um it is uh, more more males than females, but not much. Right. Um, uh, but there's no specific uh, reason identified for it. One of the areas of questioning, which I went through in helping various research projects, because they always invite you and ask yeah. you to sort of get involved in these things, and maybe and me, I do all of this, is a lot of interest around what might be described as processed meats. Oh, yes, uh, yes, I've heard Smoked yeah bacon those so how much do you but if you sort of say well you know now and again then they go well it probably isn't that but that there, there may be some sort of link to chemically processed yeah. foods and they sometimes say like about barbecued foods which may be carcinogenic yes. if they get very yes. overcooked yes you know? yes yeah but, but we're, we're really coming to the end of the interview but i want to, i really want you to say those symptoms that you mentioned last okay. night for our listeners yeah. please uh, and this is what this, this this is what we say in our, our og cancer message as we as we take it out and we, and we take this message out around the whole of Northern Ireland we have just we've just put on on the road a, an information van and a team of people um, supported by the National Lottery and yeah it's hiccups it's swallowing difficulties and it's uh, gastric reflux um, so indigestion, indigestion, type of thing, yeah. exactly, heartburn, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. And if that is, if that's a repetitive issue for you, if you're taking more than, for example, one bottle of Gaviscon or something yeah. like that uh, in the year, 
you really do need to see your GP and you don't need antacids. You need to have either a camera or side of sponge test done. Yeah, well done. Half scarf will be on to the doctor on Monday. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's that's good. That's good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it is <laughs> predominantly older, older males. Uh, so one of the outreach areas that we've been doing is we've been going to all the agricultural shows. Oh, very good, yeah. Uh, across the north, because we are trying to sort of catch that, that group mm. of people. Um, but I'd say your own profile, Stuart, you'd be well known, yeah. you know, so if you're not the poster boy exactly, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean, you're there and people say, well, you know, Stuart Dixon had that, he recovered from that, like that's very powerful in the, in a community yeah, too, you it, know. It is, I guess, and I mean, just recently, um, another inspirational person who's been coming forward is a, a young girl called McKeever, she's in her early 20s and she has had it, so it, it you know, there are yeah. lots of people can get this and uh, her family run a pharmacy in Newcastle and County Down. Yes. Uh, she's been through the same as I have been. She's surviving. She's survived and that she's been doing marathons and runs and oh, all sorts stuff, to, to fundraise for us. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, you, you need to be out there. There was no point in me hiding this and in any event I was going to be off work free. I wasn't going to give up work yeah. and I, I, you know that was my goal to keep, keep going yeah. and you uh, so I did a, a newspaper article. I filled the front page and a two-centre page spread in the Belfast Telegraph yeah. with, with my well diagnosis, yeah. Well yeah. telling people what had, what had happened and, and what was going to happen. And the more that, that happens, the better. Absolutely. Well Don't hide cancer. Tell people yeah. about it. So I suppose we, we have to come to an end. We're going very to... Reluctantly. Yeah, very reluctantly because have you here sure. all morning. <laughs> but we have some, some other guests. Thank you Good. so much for coming in and for such an interview, an interesting interview. And... Uh, Enjoy the rest of the festival. We will, and thank everybody for the, the invitation to Scarf. It's been wonderful. We enjoyed last evening. We enjoyed uh, our boat trip. We enjoyed uh, meeting everybody uh, at the um, opening ceremony last night. My wife, Sandra, and I today are going to spend a little more time around Scarf. Hope, I hope the weather picks up. Hope, and we're yeah. going to do a little driving and exploring in the area. And we're staying another night. Lovely. And we're playing um, another song from your neck of the woods, uh, which is The Mountains of Morn by John McLean for Lovely. you. <laughs> oh Mary this London's a wonderful sight with people here working by day and by night and they don't sow potatoes nor barley nor wheat but there's gangs of them digging for gold in the street at least when I asked them, that's what I was told So I just took a hand at this digging 